Father, we thank you for this rain, which uh, just the other day when we were out there for the MGN, we were asking for, and Lord, uh, you always answer, you always provide. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather as your people to continue to study and learn more about who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you for one another and for the fellowship and uh, the accountability that you give to each and every one of us here in this church. Uh, bless our time together as we study, and we pray that it will be glorifying to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, Coffee and Questions is on, and I mentioned last week that I had a few questions. Um, I've had a few more come in, so let's see if we can crank them out. I know that when that happens, some of you are sitting there and saying, but I had one that I needed to ask right now. So always the best thing is if you want to put it in writing and send it to me, that way, you know, you know that it'll, it'll make it. But Okay, so I have a couple of questions here. Here's the first one. It talks about or asks, what's the best way that we should describe uh, the difficulties that we face as a Christian or as Christians? Uh, Should it be uh, something like the fiery trials uh, or trials and tribulations or valleys or mountains or times of darkness, even though we are children of light and that kind of thing? So I think when we look at how the Scripture talks about uh, trials and tribulations. Certainly the terms trials and tribulations are straight from Scripture. So you can just refer to our troubles, to our difficulties as trials and tribulations. Scripture does that in a number of different places. Uh, fiery trials. First Peter 4, um, 13 or 14 or, or, or 12. First Peter 4, 12, I'm going to say, uses that language of fiery trial. Yeah, 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So certainly that would be a biblical way of describing it. But I think this idea of valleys and mountains, uh, while I didn't find um, necessarily that being too biblical of, of usage, although when you talk about uh, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I think that is metaphoric and uh, does point to a low moment. So I guess you can say that that is there. They're metaphors, and I think we can use those metaphors interchangeably. It just depends on what you want to best communicate uh, at that moment. Uh, mountains. Ooh, tornado warning. Okay. Uh, the mountains um, metaphor can be used in different ways. And, uh, and I think the question here hits on them, uh, mountain versus valley, which is the better definition, mountain seeing everything or the tough climb? And I think the answer is yes, <laughs> both. Um, depends, again, on what you are trying to communicate in, metaphorically in terms of the challenge. Uh, mountains can represent, oh, that's a really tough way up. Uh, but also this idea that mountaintop, you know, experience, this is where everything is good, and then the valleys are those low points. I don't think there's a, a biblical warrant to restrict ourselves to any one of these. I would use any and all, and even other, others that are not here, that occur to us as ways of expressing the trials and tribulations that we do face as believers. Um, so I hope that, that answers that question. Uh, then there's a really interesting question here about generational sin. And it's asked specifically as gener- in generational sin in relation to the sin nature being passed down through the male line. And then ask, it asks, are generational sins real? And it wants to know uh, how that works. And then does it mean that we're cursed to sin in that particular way? 
if it is real, that is. And, um, but are those sins only passed down uh, through the male line? And what about females? They're not exempt from sin and so on. Um, so, you know, how do we bring those two together? So I think there's a couple things there. When we um, answer that, let me take a look at something here. I, for this one, what do we mean by generational sins? Well, let's take a look at a passage here. In the Ten Commandments, where we first come around this saying, and this saying repeats itself in another, other places. So, in the Fourth Commandment, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Um, sorry, let's skip that. Third Commandment, Second Commandment, here we go. <clears throat> second Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any Ill, uh, likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here we go. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's this mention then of both the grace that the Lord shows, but also his judgment. And they're both in the exact same verse. Uh, takes very seriously. This is the, the second commandment is not about who you worship. That's the first commandment. It's about how we worship. Uh, which is a very important thing. In fact, in our officer training class, we've been just discussing that, that the Scripture lays out not just who, but how we worship, and it lays that stuff out, and it says that violating that actually brings real consequences. But anyway, so what's this thing then with generational sin? Does this mean then that you can't escape that? If, um, if your father, if your ancestors to the third and fourth generation have sinned, does that then mean that you are bound to do that? So I think the easiest way to answer that is to read something, if I can, uh, that was written in the Tyndale, New Test uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, because I think the answer is so succinct that I would just repeat it again and again 20 different ways. Let me find it here briefly. So, you know, commentaries, um, basically just as you go down verse by verse, they comment on what it's saying, and it says this regarding the third and fourth generation section. This is a, typ a typical Semitic phrase. Semitic is, you know, the Hebrew, Arabic, they're all that type of language. This is a typical Semitic phrase denoting continuity, not to be understood in an, arithmet in an arithmetical sense. So, um, in other words, a lot of the things in the Bible actually are idioms. We don't think of that and sometimes we want to be too literal. If I'm in English and I sit there, speaking in English, and I sit there and say, oh, he's driving me up the wall, and I wrote that down, and somebody needed to translate that into Spanish, they might be too literal saying, well, this is the holy words of John. He said, you know, driving me up the wall, so we're going to try to get that exact, you know, translation. And what we want to be able to do is translate it in a way that actually brings out the sense of what that idiom is trying to say. Another place you can see this is like in Psalm 121, uh, it says the Lord keeps you, and it keeps using that word keeps. If you're in the NIV it, and other translations, it che changes the word keeps again and again to keeps, protects, guards, and you don't get the sense like you do in the ESV and the New American Standard that it's one word that is repeated again and again and again and again for effect in Psalm 121. The Lord protects, the Lord, prote uh, the Lord keeps, the Lord keeps, the Lord keeps, the Lord keeps. 
And at the very end it says, with your going in and your going out, he keeps. That going in and going out was an expression. You know, you go into your tent, you go out of your tent, you go into your... The idea is throughout the whole of the day, whatever you're doing, the Lord keeps. That's, so it's another type of these expressions. So that's what we have here is a Semitic expression that, like, like it says here, denotes continuity. But it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, oh, it's the third, oh, it's the fourth, oh, it's cut off, now everything's good. Let me keep reading. He says, further, it is applied to those who hate God, who refuse to live their lives in accordance with his will. Since this is God's world, and this is the explanation of how generational sin works. Since this is God's world, and since we are all involved with one another, breaches of God's law by one generation do indeed affect those of future generations to come. So when you read that, you shouldn't read it so narrowly to think that what it's saying is, your dad did this. So the only person who's going to suffer is you and your siblings and your kids down to the third and fourth generation. When it's really just using the word children to say the next generation. The things that you do causes the next generation to suffer through those things. Our author says, slavery, exploitation, imperialism, pollution, immorality are all examples of this principle. What we call natural results are just an expression of God's law in operation, punishing breaches of his will. And I think that really summarizes it very well. The idea is that we just see when, for example, when uh, the uh, baby boomer generation does the things that it do- did, the you know, sort of self-centered me generation and all that, that's being suffered now by not just their children, because as you know, when we talk about generations, you skip one when you're talking about kids. So millennials are the kids of baby boomers, right? Just to, I hate to even use these terms because that's what everybody now uses, but right, you've got the greatest generation, right? These are the folks, folks who fought in World War II, and there's very few of those folks left, right? And the next one is the silent generation. Uh, that's my mom is the silent generation. So I don't think there's anybody older in this church than my mom, so that's the oldest one um, that we currently tend to have some left. There are some of these folks. Baby boomers are their kids. Say again. Yes, then X is the next one. Who are their kids. I'm a Gen X kid. My mom's silent, right? Now you get the baby boomers give birth to the millennials who are Gen Y. And Gen X, that's me, giving birth to Gray and Jack who are Gen Z. And the world's going to end because AOC said. So um, there's no more generations. See, we're at the end of the alphabet. She's so smart. But, you know, the things that the baby boomers have done affected my generation, certainly affected the way the millennials were raised as a whole. They were raised, you know, in ways of, of, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say anything. There's millennials here. But 
um, you know, the, the kind of entitlement and all that other stuff and so on. So these sins are generational. It does not necessarily mean your dad did this and so on and so on. Uh, there's a few more things I can say there. This is not the only place in Scripture where we see this uh, kind of language. It's repeated again in, this, in Exodus 34, verse 7, as we find it in Numbers 14, 18. Psalm, Psalm 79, 8, 19, 14. Isaiah 65, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah 32, verse 18. I went to one more of these, to the Exodus 34, 7. This exact same language. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will might no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the Father, and so on. And the commentator again took this up and said, to the third and fourth generation, a common Semitic idiom to express continuance. See the note on 25, the one we just finished reading. We who live in a world full of legacies of hate between colors and cultures can see only too clearly how sin in one generation affects those who follow after. And I think, again, that just really captures uh, what's going on here. Now, the question that we had wasn't just about generational sins. It was very nuanced and wanted to know about how this affects sin, the transmission of sin and uh, male headship, uh, which I think is a somewhat different thing. Um, the transmission of sin, let me go back to the question, is not literally a physical thing, but it's a headship thing. And Adam, as the federal head, a male, uh, was made responsible so that all his children then, because he is the head who represents them, his actions are then passed on to his children. But it's not necessarily a physical thing. Just like, again, um, there are some physical things. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, if you tend to be lazy, uh, there's a chance, and that's just, you know, genetically you're predisposed towards laziness. And everybody, by the way, when you hear people sit there and say something like homosexuality, oh, I'm born with it, that may very well be. Because in our brokenness, people are born with particular dispositions to sin, and they are different amongst different people. Uh, for some people, it is towards lust, and others towards gluttony, and you know, laziness, and some may be, in, in terms of sexual immorality, may be towards same-sex attraction. It could very well be that people are born with those things. That does not make it okay. So, you know, if a person is born with a predisposition to, <clears throat> again, I say laziness, it may very well be that the child also has. And so in that regard, you might say that it is a direct connection. But in many other respects, most of it are these generational sins are also cultural. We designed the system that passes on legacies of abortion and some of the other things that were being mentioned here in this question, oppression and, you know, just um, the culture that we have today. Um, it will be very hard. You know, the, uh, Gen Z is showing something like, and I just read this, this a couple of weeks ago, Something like a 70, 70, 70% increase in identifying as homosexual. I'm just going to use that word. I know they use L-G-B-T-I-A, you know, and everything. And it could be that one, one identifies as intersex, another one as trans, another one, but just homosexuality. But that is because of the sins of these people who've set it up culturally. So, but the idea of the transmission of sin is an imputation and by imputation means that you are reckoned in terms of, we think of imputation for Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. 
Well, the same thing. Adam's sin, according to Romans chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12, is imputed to us. And that is a spiritual, a judicial reckoning, imputation. It is not physical. So uh, by, Ad, by, by Jesus not having a physical father and being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he's fully human, yet that line of imputation is broken. Why? Because, again, the male represents the head of the home. Adam was the federal head, and what he did would be imputed to his descendants. But it's not a physical transmission, like, you know, DNA that you pass on. So, you know, you've got blue eyes, and now your kid got blue eyes, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? Is that good? We may have time for one more question. Does anybody have a question? Yes, take it. Uh huh. What happened? And the fourth day is when it makes when he makes the sun and the moon. Right. How can that be? Ah. <clears throat> I probably could do a whole uh, semester on that. Uh, that has been done on that. So there, there's there's ways to wrestle with this. The first one, which I'm going to dismiss, is that this is just um, all metaphoric language, and. Um, And the whole thing is just a literary account. So I'm going to throw that out. I don't think it works. Because Moses, who writes this, is writing this as history. Some people have said, but it's poetic. Yes, it is written. It's it's exalted prose. It's not Hebrew poetry. There's lots of clear examples of Hebrew poetry in the Psalms, in the wisdom books, in the prophets. This is not, but it is written in exalted prose. You know, like when you read a really great author who just, because of the, the, magne, the, 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 the magnificence of the subject just lifts it up and the way it's written and so on. But it's still prose. So it's not a literary uh, creation. It's, it's a real event. However, that does not mean that it's presented to us in the way you might read uh, a, a medical journal or, a, uh, in this case, an astronomical journal or something like that with that level of scientific writing. So it's trying to communicate something. But it, it's interesting when you see it. The communication is such as if you were standing on the ground. If you look at all six days, everything that's happening is seen from the viewpoint of an observer on the ground. That's why in the beginning it says that he created the heavens and the earth, and almost immediately it just zooms. And everything you see is happening around you, and you're watching God form order out of seeming chaos. Right? So I think that's an important point because it means like everything else, when a writer writes, you shape without lying. We all, you know, we all have viewpoints and ways in which we present the material. And it's being presented to us from a perspective that, the, that no matter what culture and what time and what place and what your scientific um, um, uh, abilities are, uh, you're able to understand. There's never been a, a, a culture that has read this text and sit there and said, I don't understand what it's saying. They, they have questions about how, but I, I just don't understand. It makes no, what's the, no, it's always been presented in the most accessible form possible because God actually knows. Uh, he knew we'd be ultra scientific and we'd still be able to in, uh, understand this and, and uh, illiterate, if you want to call it cultures or whatever, could still understand it. So it's set from that perspective. That said, how do we deal with light being created on day one, but the sun and the moon and the stars being created on day four? And there's several ways that, you can, that have been handled. One is, and I think this is very weak, there's absolutely no evidence of it, 
uh, is the idea that since we're doing the earth perspective, that there's this huge canopy, and it does talk about the word canopy, that has uh, since the 40s and really since the 60s is when it kicked in, there's been a bunch of guys pushing back on evolution in our broader evangelical circles. And so you probably have heard this if you grew up in a dispensational church that also had the charge for premillennialism and all that other stuff. They probably also would talk about the creation days and they would talk about a huge canopy that covered the earth, a cloud cover. And that all the rain was in that cloud cover. Any of you heard any of this? And that's the rain that would come down later for Noah. Okay. And they would point to this word canopy and they would translate that and say, that is, you know, this cloud cover. And so what's happening is God creates the sun and the moon and the stars on day one. But because you're from this perspective, you can't see it. It's behind the cloud, cloud cover. All you see is diffuse light. Like, we're, like we have right now. You can't see the sun, but you can see light. And it's on day four that the clouds part. And you can see the sun, moon, and stars. There's a lot of problems with that. that there's, first of all, there's a lot of things that are um, being speculated that's not in the text. Uh, like the clouds parting and all that other stuff. It does seem to say in verse 4 that he made the sun, moon, and stars on that day. I I think that's pretty literal. Uh, It's hard to get past that. Also, the word canopy is very poorly translated as this cloud cover. That's not at all what it means. Sadly to say, a lot of the broadly evangelical um, guys who did that pushing against evolution in the 40s, 50s, and 60s we're not the best Hebrew scholars, and the Hebrew word really does not mean that at all. It just simply means the expanse as we see it, the, the heavens, the sky that we see. That's all it means. So more than likely, you're talking about God being able to create light. Now, if you want to, trans, uh, uh, if you want to be Einstein, right, this is how it all works. Science and even these descriptions, they're, they're all in harmony. Einstein tells us, that matter is energy and energy is matter. Matter can be converted into energy. You do that every time you eat, right? You put your fuel into your car and it gets translated into energy when it combusts. And energy can be converted back into matter. We see that in photosynthesis, the energy of the sun, photons and so on, are, transmi- are, are uh, um, uh, converted into matter. And trees grow. So that's a principle we get even if we don't get E equals MC, two, uh, e equals MC squared. But it's that same principle that's there. So now you want to say that elegantly. You don't sit there and say, and God created energy, which could be, you just say he created light, which is a form of energy. And so most people then take that as meaning that this is when he created matter. This is when he created space. This is when he created, because space, X, Y, Z dimension is actually a creation. Even nothing is a creation, if that makes sense. Empty space is a creation created space, he created matter to fill it, and he created the energy to fill it, and then he starts putting it together on the next few days. Does that help? Which means that at some point he coalesces um, the sun, moon, and the stars and makes them what emits regularly that light for us. But energy was created on day one. So I'm going to leave it there. Our time is up. Good questions. I have one other to deal with. Uh, We'll probably take that up next week. So, and if you have anything else that you really, 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 really need to ask, too bad. Uh, <laughs> we'll take it up soon. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the creation. We thank you that we have this magnificent and majestic account that is so clear that we understand exactly what it's saying, even if we have questions about how you pulled it all off. And yet, um, it's a beautiful account that reminds us 
<clears throat> that the whole of the creation was out of nothing, completely under your control, exactly as you wanted and perfectly suited for mankind. You've made everything for us, um, and as the previous questions showed, we've blown them all. And our sin carries from one generation to the other as we have um, culturally and even physically uh, done all those things which um, just cause us to ruin the creation. But thank you for Jesus because he is the one who came to break the mold and to stop the curse. And through him, Father, we know that all things are being renewed and will be ultimately renewed at his return. Until then, Father, be with us even as we gather now for worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.